it's not as easy as just saying rural broadband needs to happen. I mean, it needs a really hard look at how it's going to get done and how it's going to get paid for. You're listening to episode 276 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. All Band Communications, a cooperative in rural Michigan, began bringing telephone services to the community in the early 2000s. No private sector providers served the area. It was only a matter of time before they started offering some of the best internet access to their members via their fiber network. This week, Ron Siegel from Allband visits to share the interesting story that started when one driven individual discovered a need and worked with his community to fill it. Learn about what Allband has done, what they're working on now, and what sort of challenges they face in the state of Michigan. Here's the interview. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell, and today I'm speaking with Ron Siegel, the General Manager of All Band Communications Cooperative in Michigan. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Appreciate it. This is a story, the All Band story, that I think is is really unique. And I don't say that to say that it's interesting, but that it's literally unique. <laughs> I don't know if there's another organization like yours. Uh, we'll get to that in uh, toward, toward the end of the show as to where you came from. But I think it makes sense to dive in with, um, you know, what are you doing? Where are you located? Uh, we're located in the northeast lower peninsula of Michigan. We're about our home base is about 30 miles southwest of Alpena, Michigan, and um, we are essentially a fiber-to-the-home provider. We've been doing fiber-to-the-home for over 12 years now. You know, we provide 100 megabit internet. This was actually a greenfield area, meaning that nothing was ever built, and I'll, I'll save that for the history discussion, but that's really what we're doing is expanding um, our fiber presence as much as we can. And we do that through unique business models and a lot of blood, sweat, and tears by me and a lot of other people on our board and um, just trying to get these pipes to these people and to build a good foundation for the future out here. And right now we're, we're at over 400 miles of fiber and we cover an area that's about 300 square miles and it's about a density of about one and a half people per mile in the real rural areas. So it's it's definitely one of these situations where you would not expect to see a network like this in an area we're in. But through a lot of, you know, unique opportunities and, and u- utilizing subsidies and some of the some of the subsidies from the government, which has been, you know, under a lot of uh, change for the last seven, six, seven years. Um, but that's how it kind of we got started. It's very wooded, very hilly. Um, there is some agricultural areas, but we are in a very wooded area. Um, we bury all of our fiber, so we've kind of done that to maintain the serenity of the area. It's It's been an interesting story. It's been an interesting uphill battle, but we're quite proud of what we did. And I've been here since uh, I got out of Michigan State University. I got my master's in telecom, and I actually wrote my thesis in rural telecom development. So it's been very interesting to take my education and kind of be thrown to the wolves up here and, and build this company from the ground up and watch the impact it's had in our community. It's just been really great. And it's been hard at times, but it's very fulfilling to, to see what we've done for the people. So when you say the the community and the, the 300 square miles, is that entirely areas in which there are no other providers in which you were the first, or is there a mix? We actually have three entities now. Um, we've started referring to ourselves as just all-band communications, but the original entity and the parent entity is all-band communications cooperative. It's a not-for-profit. It, originally covered a 177 square mile area 
and uh, that's the area of our regulated exchange. So the co-op is actually uh, technically an, an incumbent local exchange carrier because there was nothing here previously. It, it was a black hole that was left behind. It was one of like 15 actually in the entire state back when we first started this that the independent, large independents like GTE or the Bell companies left behind because there was no reason to build. As time went on, we started identifying and our local residents around here started requesting service and found out that they couldn't get it nor would they ever get it because it wasn't a tariffed area. And that's essentially why we started the co-op. We worked with the public, the public PUC, the Michigan Public Service Commission, and the FCC and USAC, and we had to go through a lot of red tape to get waivers to be classified as an ILAC, which was at the time, I think we were the first one to get that designation in like 30 years. If I could just break in for a second, it's it's worth noting for people who are, are more on the, the broadband side that historically um, the telephone companies were incumbent telephone companies back when um, there was no competition. And then in 1996, we created this new thing called CLEX, which are competitive local um, companies that were the, the new competition that came in. And so it was kind of odd to create a new incumbent because there just aren't right. that many areas where there was nothing previously. Yeah. And because of this black hole or unserved area, or actually we call it an unassigned area, meaning that you know, no incumbent carrier, phone company, traditional carrier was uh, basically had a license to serve it. it. It never got served. And it all started, and I don't want to jump into the history too soon, but, you know, our, our president tried to get a phone from GTE at the time and couldn't and found out that he lived in this black hole area. And that's what started all this. And, you know, everything is broadband centric now. Everything's about broadband. And, um, you know, landlines are kind of a thing of the past, as we know. And, you know, it's to the point where a lot of these larger companies are starting to dismantle their copper in lieu of wireless because that's where the ROI is. But in these areas like we're in, we still don't have quality cell phone coverage. So having these landline connections and having 911 is critical. And that's really why all band was started originally was to provide 911. So, you know, we, we, we got a, a loan from the Rural Utility Service and we're able to get waivers from the FCC to be classified as an ILEC, and that allowed us to get high-cost loop funding from USF and allowed us to work with uh, the National Exchange Carrier Association and participate in their pool system. So basically, if we hadn't done that and we built this network, we would have been charging people, you know, three, $400 a month for phone. And because it was Greenfield, because nothing was here, because the cellular networks were non-existent, because there was no baseline infrastructure, we decided even back then to do fiber to the home. And it was a great decision because we've had this wonderful foundation and we've gone from offering three meg internet all the way up to a hundred and higher now. And um, once we built that out, when Obama took office and the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act took place, we were very blessed to and worked very hard to get a hundred percent grant from that. And we were able to expand north and south of our Robs Creek exchange, which is the, the, regulated phone exchange to serve people that didn't have broadband. So to answer your question, the the co-op area was originally built because it was unserved with phone and broadband, obviously. Um, Now, back then, that was a time when we had like one one PC per household. Now, it's different these days. Um, And then we formed Allband Multimedia, which is our non-regulated entity, and that serves uh, the other areas we're in north and south of our, our regulated exchange. And those were areas where no broadband existed, which obviously was a requirement from the grant. 
that's how we got our, our start. While we're back in history, I think it maybe let's just go through the origin story, just the, the quick version of it, which, um, you know, as I understand, starts with um, the telephone company quoting an outrageous price to your founder. And then when he finally agreed to pay it, saying, uh, we're not going to even do it at that price. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting story. And you're right, it is unique and it hasn't been duplicated and others tried to duplicate it, but um, regulatory reform uh, kind of got in the way of that, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, our founder, John, he was building a house on his hunting property up here that was in his family for years and called GTE and got a phone number assigned. And um, they came out and said, well, we got a problem. You're four miles from our nearest pedestal. And he goes, what are you talking about? I have my number here. He goes, well, you don't understand. Like, we have to build four miles to get to hook you up. And he actually, uh, because of the necessity for his business and a lot of other reasons, he actually worked with them to pay a significant amount of money. And it's a story that is uh, actually quite, it was duplicated by people around here trying to get phones and giving these exorbitant, huge bills. And so he actually went and paid it and but right when he did that, Verizon took over GTE, and uh, they came back out and gave him his check back and said, we're never going to serve you. And he's like, what are you talking about? You're in an unassigned area. We don't have to serve you, nor will we. We're, you're not tariffed. We can't. This isn't our exchange. And I think it's it's worth noting that, that he had you know decided to invest in building a larger home there on the promise that he would be able to connect it. And um, them changing their mind and changing their policy was – it's not just a matter of telling someone, oh, it's unreasonable. But he had made a significant investment with that promise in mind. Correct. Yeah. You know, that's the problem, right? You know, when you're a larger corporation, he was probably talking to somebody in Texas or the East Coast or something. And they didn't know. <laughs> And, you know, the, the whole idea of having these unassigned areas are, are just completely like, you know, like mind blowing to people because we live in a modern world where cell phone is really your, your main method of communication. And now we're in this broadband world. But even back then, there was absolutely zero cell phone coverage. And John actually started this co-op literally by driving 10 miles down to the gas station in Curran and sitting on the payphone literally all day. I mean, the, the, the folks at the gas station got to know him so well, they would bring him coffee throughout the day because he was just <laughs> sitting there on the payphone because it was the only way he could get calls out. And, you know, so when this happened to him, he started researching this more and, and started talking to neighbors and found out that it was actually a very traumatic issue because people were dying up here. We, we had, you know, there was a young boy that drowned there was a gentleman who had a heart attack and the wife couldn't call for help. And she, by the time she drove to Alpena and got an ambulance back here, he had died alone on his floor. Um, there was fires and, and car accidents that, you know, I, and John one time, I think actually had to help with a, a, a near fatal or fatal car accident. I don't recall. So, you know, so going beyond his economic needs and his, you know, convenience needs and the fact that, you know, we had this thing called the universal service. So that said, everybody was entitled to a phone he identified this was a problem. And so what happened is he called the Michigan Public Service Commission to, you know, file a complaint and see what they could do. And they basically said, sorry, we can't do anything. We can't make them serve you. It's not a tariffed area. Well, ironically, that was a very wonderful gentleman named Ron Chura, who uh, has since passed away many years ago. If you want to talk about a man that was very pro-consumer and, and trying to, you know, sift through all the red tape, I mean, he really wanted change. So, Ron was actually adjunct faculty at Michigan State University, and that's how I got involved in this, is I kind of had this awakening at the end of my bachelor's, you know, what am I going to do in my life? And I started <laughs> yeah. asking my professors for some real-world experience, and 
um, he got me involved. And John, what he did, John did is he partnered with Michigan State University's telecom department, and I helped lead a group of students on how to improve broadband and phone up here. And we got a grant from um, the Link Michigan Initiative, which was an old broadband development grant the state of Michigan did, which they really need to do more of those. Um, and that's that was the seed funding to start all band, and that's how we were able to get our application built for our U.S. and go through and hire the attorneys and the accountants. So it was really a grassroots effort of a lot of different entities, um, Northeast Michigan Council of Governments in Michigan, the state of Michigan, the FCC, our U.S. I mean, it was really a wonderful exercise, and we were literally the poster child of USF at the time. Now, that's gotten a little bit more complicated since reform started in 2011 and we've actually been fighting for our survival but i'll be honest with you that's a whole other podcast we could do that's kind of how we got started when you say fighting for your survival i think one of the concerns that that people have about uh subsidizing rural networks is the idea that they would need indefinite subsidy is that something that that's true are you able to if you didn't get any more grants would you be able to continue operating the network you have you know, it's it's more complicated than just saying that. I mean, when we entered into this, it was a joint effort by the FCC and the Rural Utility Service to it basically, when we applied for funding from RUS, they said one of your prerequisites is you have to get approved as an ILEC so you can get support. And the FCC looked at it. They looked at our business model. They knew it was a very rural area. They knew what Congress intended to do with USF. And they said this is in the best interest of the public. It's in the best interest of the constituents. So they went ahead and approved it. And, you know, it's been a long road because when you're in a rural area, you're you're dealing with right-of-way issues. You're dealing with construction issues. There's a, a high expense. And, I mean, obviously the the business model of rural broadband just doesn't work if with the free market. I mean, the free market fails rural areas. I think you probably better than anybody know that. <laughs> and that's why you need to get creative subsidies. So to answer your question, I mean, there really, it, it's not indefinite. I mean, what you have to remember about USF is it's, it's a cost recovery mechanism. It's not like we're just getting this free money. We had to spend the money for two years and survive for two years before we started getting our high cost loop support. And it's a recovery of that investment and of that operating expense to keep the cost down for the consumer. So people out here and anywhere, no one who would pay $400 for a phone line. I mean, that's just not how it works. And that's what the fund was for. And and as your plant depreciates and as you start growing your customer base, your dependency or your cost per loop starts to come down. And that was the problem in 2011 is when they reformed USF and put a cap on it. We were way above the cap. Really, you know, we're not looking for funding forever. I mean, I am very proactive in, in leveraging this investment we've been blessed with out here and trying to do more of it. The original model was, is we're going to take this money out from our U.S. You know, everyone sees it, sees fit to make sure that these people out here can get service, just like Congress intended. And we're going to need these subsidies to pay back this, this Russ loan because there's no ROI on this network. And there's no really way to do wireless. At the time, wireless wasn't even something I would even entertain, you know, even though suggestions were made to use satellite phones and things like that. And that's just crazy. But yeah, I mean, really what we're looking for is to continue the support so we can pay back this Rust loan. But we have been very, very proactive with the limited resources and staff we have out here to continue to grow our loot base, continue to work with the government and the local municipalities to mm-hmm. allow access. But, you know, for example, we have a large area in our exchange that's very hard to get to because it's all privately owned roads. In Michigan, there's no real eminent domain or anything like that. So if I need to get ingress, egress for utility into some of these areas, I have to get easements from like 20 people. 
And if one person on that road decides to be a holdout or doesn't want to work with me, then everyone else can't get phone service. Right. So it's 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 tough. It is worth noting um, that uh, Indiana just dealt with this for their electric co-ops. And so there may be some um, model legislation in terms of easements um, that um, – you might be interested in seeing if the Michigan legislature would consider. But I think it's it's worth revisiting just how rural you are. I mean, you said you're dealing with these smaller, some of these areas are one, one and a half people per mile. And, you know, I think rural often starts for the private sector at like 11 people per mile. And the uh, electric co-ops that I'm familiar with can often build without subsidy to five people per mile. But when you're down to one and a half people per mile, I feel like, you know, I feel like much of rural Michigan probably looks at you and says, wow, these guys are really rural. You could kind of draw a plus sign over the lower peninsula of Michigan, you know, and demographically, the west side, the northwest side of the state, you know, where there's Traverse City, we have Petoskey. And believe it or not, there's areas over there that are still tremendously unserved, too. But it's more of a touristy side on that side. Over here, you know, you have a lot more people coming up for hunting and fishing, camping. It's more blue collar it's, uh, you know, more economically distressed. That's just the way it is. And, you know, when you factor all that in into the ruralness, you, you have this disconnect with people want it, but they don't want to pay for it and they can't afford it. And, you know, that's hard for an ISP or a rural provider like me. And that's where subsidies come in. I mean, I, I mean, to cut to the chase, there's, there's two words that really explain rural broadband, and that's, that's, that's subsidy and that's density. And if you don't have the density, you need the subsidy and nothing has changed. And, you know, I don't want to go on a political rant, but, you know, rural broadband is, is this constant cyclical political discussion. Every politician, whether or not they want to get elected for the first time or get reelected, they listen to their constituents. The constituents go to the politicians and complain about not having access because the big companies aren't doing it. They're not listening. You know, they make these efforts to aggregate demand and, and they're not doing it. And then they look to companies like me and I don't have a magic wand. You know, I am a very unique case and I do what I can. But, um, you know, without these subsidies, I don't know what, what we really can do. We, over the years, it's taken over a decade, but we're finally getting people to understand, you know, let me put my fiber in closer to the road where it's not so expensive. You know, we have our federal government talking about these infrastructure plans happening. We have a lot, we have millions of dollars going to the price cap carriers like Frontier with CAF2. I think you said millions, but um, the it's actually billions. <laughs> when yeah, you total well, it. yeah, millions, yeah. billions. But you're right. And, you know, that's going into a legacy technology called DSL, which, you know, if you talk to people up here, people are not happy with. And I don't mean to be bashing on them, but, you know, it's frustrating when the, the, the real pioneers of rural broadband, the independents have been fighting all these years, and all of a sudden we see millions and millions of dollars going to the big companies, and we see – you know, the little guys are left to fight over chicken bones and these USF caps and things like that. And there's a true disconnect between rural broadband and politicians. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, they think wireless is everywhere. It's not. They think wireless magically appears on towers. Well, guess what? If you don't have a baseline infrastructure to support those towers, it's never going to happen. And everything is based around an ROI, everything. And without the government providing subsidies, for example, the, and you do a lot of stuff on municipal broadband. I've, I've listened to your podcast. I've listen to Seabooing. I've gone to visit Seabooing. I've worked closely with Holland, Michigan to see, you know, how we can synergetically, you know, try to provide some kind of municipal. And, you know, now I'm seeing legislation come out from our own state saying they're trying to limit what funding municipalities can get. It's frustrating uh, because it seems like we work so hard from here and we're in the trenches and uh, we're just still not getting the support we need. You know, there's grants out there like Community Connect grants and things like that, but they're highly competitive. A lot of them go to tribal nations. 
and we're left here kind of getting creative. So, and that kind of segues me into what we're doing now. We've actually formed a 501c3 called the Alban Center for Education, Wildlife, and Research. And that's a traditional 501c3 that is focused on using our broadband infrastructure and others around here, like Merit Network, for example, had built this amazing middle mile net reach network, which I'm sure you know about, and companies like us who are not-for-profit are trying to work with them to help build communities, to help look at ways we can um, address societal needs. So the 501c3 entity we're using to do research, we're trying to work with entities like the DNR and um, governments and schools to say, look, we have this very rural area. An example is we have, you know, wildlife issues up here like chronic wasting disease and bovine tuberculosis, which is affecting their economies and the property values of our hunting properties up here. Well, we're trying to be a facilitator for data collection where, you know, we can accept money and, and get grants and work with these entities to use our fiber to do uh, wildlife research, to do broadband um, workfare instead of welfare, to do uh, telemedicine research, you know, anything you can use broadband for. When I talk to our legislators, and I, I look at these, you know, especially these junior politicians, and I say, you know, if you're being put on these, in these appropriation committees, you're deciding how much money is going to each area. If you give me any area in politics, I can show you how broadband can help it. Right. And until people start looking at that and looking at broadband as a gateway service, as a utility, they're not going to get it. And that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to get creative. We have this amazing backbone. We have access to an amazing statewide backbone. And we're really trying to look at, um, you know, how we can use this fiber investment that the, the federal government has and the USF ratepayers have blessed us with to do more with it. And now we're even looking at wireless. You know, when you're mentioning about how broadband makes everything better, I'm, I'm always reminded of, I think it was in the 80s, I was, when I was growing up, there was these ads everywhere that was from BASF, and it, they would say, you know, at BASF, we don't make the products that you use, but we make them better. And and I feel like it's sort of similar when I'm looking at broadband. I mean, broadband itself um, doesn't necessarily solve all these issues, but it it, it makes it gives us new tools to use. And um, in yeah. particularly, I mean, one of the reasons I didn't want to interrupt you as you were you know being passionate there is I feel like people need to understand it. I mean, you're here, you're trying to make this work. You're, you're doing, um, you know, you're made, you're doing what needs to be done to make sure that, that rural America is not left behind in the ways that we decided in the past that as a country, we were not going to leave it behind for electrification. We are not going to leave it behind for telephone and we've reaped the rewards of that. And people need to be reminded. Um, but in the meantime, like you're up there doing this work. So, um, so I do, I, I, I appreciate that. I always use the term in the trenches. I mean, I, I'd i love for the FCC commissioners, for example, to make a little field trip out here. I'd host them for several days. I'd, I'd keep them busy. I'd show them what's going on. And, you know, and I'm not saying there aren't, they're not trying to do what's best for the constituents, but it, it does, it, there seems to be a disconnect, whether it's the state or the federal government. And, um, and it's, it's not as easy as just saying rural broadband needs to happen. I mean, it needs, a really hard look at how it's going to get done and how it's going to get paid for. And when I look at the stuff we spend money on in our government, man, and you know, I look, defense is important. Don't get me wrong, but we're spending millions and millions and millions on missiles. And I get chastised for wanting to spend millions of dollars on 911 fiber to the home in a rural area. You know, and it, that's what frustrates me is that crisscross. And, you know, when 2011 came around and they started reforming USF, we started getting a lot of political 
uh, negativity towards fiber of the home, it's gold plating. Doing fiber in rural areas is gold plating. Well, uh, you know, Google started a trend and now everyone's doing fiber of the home and it's the next big thing. And if you don't have an area that has anything, why would you put in copper? It doesn't make any sense. One of the things that people will suggest is that wireless, um, magic wireless specifically, will just solve all these problems. And so I'm curious as we wrap up the show, if you can just give us a sense of, of what the real world is like, how you're using wireless and, and, and how it plays into your overall solution. Yeah, I mean, so since I've been here, you know, I've, I've worked in, in, you know, kind of rubbed elbows with a lot of wisps up here. And, you know, they've been, you know, they've been using licensed 900 megahertz, things like that. And, and I, I always give these guys credits because as long going back to when I was in college, they, they were trying to do something, you know, something better than dial up, something better than satellite. And, um, you know, but it, it became tough and, and, you know, it seems like in rural America, you're always chasing demands of society. Uh, you know, there's a big difference between, um, you know, third world countries that are just getting broadband and, and areas in our country that are like a third world country, but you have consumers that expect something and trying to keep up with the demand, the insatiable broadband demand of our public these days can be hard. I don't have that problem with the fiber, but I've always been kind of anti-wireless up here, mainly because of the terrain we're in. We have a lot of trees, which is the number one enemy of wireless, a lot of that being coniferous trees. And you have a lot of hills, and you know it, it's tough. And you want to be able to give somebody that's future-proofed a technology that is future-proofed and, and workable and can support the, the insatiable demand of whole families now with several devices in their homes. So I've been kind of anti-wireless, especially during the era of time, because I was worried, you know, what's going to happen if the government keeps investing in, in this wireless technology that has a five to seven year uh, lifespan on it. Are you going to come in and give them more money to replenish it? Because I doubt that they have enough uh, depreciation accrual going on to reinvest in these networks. But, you know, now we've, um, we're actually working on TV white space technology, which is kind of, you know, in its pioneering state, but we're, we're working with uh, merit network and Microsoft right now on piloting TV white space up here. I'm working on with uh, 5 gigahertz technology in some of the denser areas. I'm trying to find a magical recipe to combine a mimosa or a cambium type, type 5 gigahertz uh, technology in more of the more populated, at least in terms of ruralness, more of a populated pocket areas, and then looking at stuff like white space to kind of serve the needs of the outliers. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the, the goal here is we want to start leveraging this fiber more. And one of the problems WISPs have is they have, they struggle to find good backbones in rural areas at a fair price, and we've been able to put this fiber in. So we're trying to find new ways to do that. You know, and it's, it's, it's the idea of going from macro pop to micro pop. You know, macro pop is putting up a $250,000 tower like LTE companies versus micro pop, where if I have a mile, mile and a half road in a rural area and I didn't have enough funding or demand to put fiber down it, I can take my fiber knit at the beginning of the road on the main road, put up a little point to point wireless node, shoot it down the road and then put up a little like, uh, you know, five gigahertz distribution node there and serve like a pocket of six people at the end of the road and do it to the point where I can financially afford to put it in and actually get my money back on it and continue to accrue money for future investment. And, and that's real world scenarios of how you get the job done when you have exactly. the tools you have. Yeah. 
Thank you for sharing that with us. I, you know, it's really useful to get a sense of how people are making this work in the real world and what the real challenges are. Um, you know, just to, to document it, and hopefully, we'll get this to some of the folks that are making decisions, and maybe they'll learn a little bit. I appreciate the time and appreciate the opportunity to tell our story, and and I also appreciate what you guys do. You guys do a tremendous job, and I enjoy listening to your podcast very much. That was Christopher talking with Ron Siegel from All Band Communications, a rural Michigan cooperative. We have transcripts from this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other ILSR podcasts, Building Local Power, and the Local Energy Rules Podcast. You can access them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Never miss out on our original research. Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. And thanks for listening to episode 276 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Podcast.